GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. The government says it's referring Monday's disruption to its IT systems to the police, suggesting it could be sabotage. The GGCA union says IT and LD staff taking industrial action are horrified, afraid and intimidated by that position taken by the government. We'll get the latest from Shalina Asimov. But first, the GHA's new Director General has been working in healthcare for more than 30 years. He's been at the Health Authority now for three or four months. What are his initial impressions? Kevin McGee joins us. We're going to talk about healthcare for the next 25 minutes or so. But first, you've relocated to Gibraltar. What are your first impressions? Yes, of course, and thanks for the invite to to come along this afternoon. Um, In terms of Gibraltar generally, I mean, we we find it an absolutely uh, lovely place. The people are very warm, very friendly. It's got a vibrant culture, a vibrant history. And... um, What's really, really struck me is just how safe Gibraltar feels. It feels a really safe place to be. Um, and that the connections with the family and the communities and how family-orientated really stand out. It's really struck me. I mean, I've got... I come from a, you know, a large family. I have four children, so very family-orientated. And that's really struck me about Gibraltar in terms of that connection to the families and connections to the communities. And I think it's really beautiful and really wonderful. And, uh, of course, you used to be the chief executive for Lancashire Teaching Hospitals. Um, How does this health authority, the Gibraltar Health Authority, compare? Well, healthcare the world over has got many, many similarities. Um, You know, we're all competing for the same staff. We're all trying to deal with healthcare post the pandemic. We're all trying to manage the increasing demands that, that, that there are on the health services. So that's very similar, whether you are in the UK, Gibraltar, it doesn't matter where in the world you are, those issues are very, very similar. What's different, of course, is the context in which it's played out. And what I see in, in Gibraltar are some really good services, some really dedicated staff really working incredibly hard delivering good services and frontline services. I think what's different, though, is because um, the services are relatively small in Gibraltar, you only need, say, one or two people to be off sick or to um, retire, and the services can really struggle. So it's just that size and that scale which is different. So, you know, if, if, I, if I think of my previous organisation, it was called Lancashire Teaching Hospital in the UK, you know, it had a turnover of nearly 800 million per annum. We had staff of 10,000. So you had a lot of infrastructure and you had a lot of support and all the departments were quite big. So if one person was off sick, you could manage that. In Gibraltar, it's a little bit different and many of the crucial services are staffed by one or two individuals. So you have to be much more thoughtful about how you provide those services and you have to be planning ahead much more so you can always continue to provide those services. So there's uh, almost a lack of resilience in that by virtue of its size? So we try and build that resilience in. We look at different ways of staffing, we look at different rotors. So we're always trying to build that resilience in. But I think you're right, just the size 
brings more jeopardy into healthcare within Gibraltar and how we provide care in Gibraltar. And, and you know, what the GHA has tried to do over the last few years is to bring services back to Gibraltar, which is absolutely right. What we don't want is if we can provide the services, why should um, residents have to go to Spain or to the UK? If we can provide those services safely in Gibraltar, that's exactly what we should be doing. But, of course, there is a scale and a size that comes into play. Now, uh, we, we heard uh, about a, a seven-point plan to, to restart. Let's see if I can get this right. I do have it written down somewhere. Uh, the restart... Uh, 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 Lost my notes, my place in my notes, Mr. McGee. But uh, uh, a few months ago, uh, a few years ago, actually, it was in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, um, we heard a seven-point plan, uh, reset, restart and recover. There we go. Um, uh, a plan which uh, your predecessor, Professor Patrick Gagan, launched um, together with the uh, health minister at the time. Um, and uh, you've talked about us still being in this phase of, um, you know, bouncing back after the COVID-19 pandemic. How much of that plan has been delivered so far? Is it still the blueprint that you are working to uh, to, to sort of continue to develop the GHA? Yes, so, so I mean, I think that was a really ambitious seven-point plan that, w- that, that was established a, a few years ago. And I recognise and support support it because what it's trying to do is to do some structural changes in terms of the GHA. So it established the GHA board as a unitary board. It tried to separate the, the, like the, the ministry from the GHA. Um, it's established um, a, a programme to really get on top of the likes of waiting lists and outstanding activity that had been delayed as a consequence of the pandemic. So much of that has been delivered. We need to continue. And I think the way health is evolving and the way healthcare is evolving, any strategy, any plan is only right at a point in time. It always moves moves on. If you think about health and social care the world over now, it is changing rapidly in terms of digital technology, in terms of genomics technology, in terms of drug regimes that we can implement. So it's right that the GHA is trying to keep ahead of that and it's trying to think about its future strategy. So to answer your question directly, I think much of that seven-point plan has been delivered and we're looking at that and thinking about how we can evolve it for the future. Five key people were to be appointed uh, to work across the GHA to help deliver on quality, efficiency, productivity, innovation, uh, and um, to prevent across... Uh, sorry, innovation and prevention. Uh, yes, it was prevention is better than cure. No? Uh, and uh, and it was to build on practice from around the world and, and create sort of a, a hub of... Uh, or a team uh, that that sort of drives that excellence. Uh, Is this something that has happened? It's something that that has happened and it will continue to happen. So if you look at the prevention agenda, there's a lot of work and a lot of really good work going on with the Director of Public Health about how we can keep our communities fitter and healthier. Because the reality is you actually don't want to be in hospital if you don't need to be in hospital. Hospitals are the last place you really need to be. And the more that we can keep our communities safe out of hospital, through prevention, investing in prevention, that's the right thing to do. So that programme of work supported by the Director of Public Health is ongoing. So, yes, a, a lot of that work has been, has been implemented, but I think the thing, again, to note about health, you never reach an endpoint. Health is always evolving. Health is always changing. And any plan, as I said, is only right at a point in time and needs to continually evolve and change. And that's what we're doing with the seven-point plan.
Now, um, in that plan, uh, there was uh, one of the the points was to create uh, the role of a finance director, uh, which was created, but um, the person moved on. And in response to GBC questions a few months ago, the government said it did not intend to appoint a new director of finance for the GHA. Your thoughts on on that um, sort of departure from the seven-point plan? So we have somebody acting into the role currently in terms of uh, overall finance and looking at the the, the finance of the GHA. And uh, that person is working incredibly well. So... I think we have to look at what's needed in terms of the executive team for the future, look at that role and think about how do we how do we fill it if, of course, that we do fill it. So um, finance is really important. You know, I'm a public servant. I recognise that we need to manage our resources and use our resources incredibly well. So whether it's through the finance director themselves or through all of our staff, because it's all of our responsibility management of the GHA finances is important and it's an important piece of the business. So it, it was finance director previously and, and now it's a uh, health financial advisor, is that? No, we, we've got a, a separate act, role. It's a separate, we've got an acting director of finance in the role in the GHA. Okay, so so uh, so you're satisfied then that that uh, that that position and and the responsibilities are are being um, carried out. They're being discharged very well. I mean, my background is I'm an accountant by background. So, I, before I was a chief executive in the English NHS, I was a finance director for many years. So I understand finances. I understand how public finances work, and I am satisfied that we have good and strong financial controls within the GHA. And this month we've learned that a health financial advisor has been appointed who is also the care agency finance director. Can you explain how that works from the health authority's perspective? Well, that's a separate role to the GHA and it's a role I wouldn't want to comment on, but it's separate to the GHA. What I can say is the GHA has its own acting director of finance and the financial controls and the work in the GHA and finances will continue and will continue at a pace. We've we've had John get in touch. Uh, he's among the listeners who think actually that that um, I, I should invite you actually to comment, even though you said you don't want to comment, uh, because uh, GBC understands that uh, this person is your, your spouse, and it, and it gives uh, rise to the suggestion, as John says, uh, that there may have been a conflict of interest or that due process wasn't followed. Uh, what would you say uh, to that suggestion? So we've always been very clear. Um, the person you're referring to is my spouse. We were always very clear and very open about that from right the way through all of the recruitment processes. But anything to do with that role um, needs to be directed to that individual. That individual is a very highly experienced professional in their own right and any questions need to be directed to them. But as Director General, you're satisfied that the the processes that you would expect to be followed when recruiting senior people, that those processes were followed in this case? Um, As I said, I went through a very um, extensive recruitment process and I'm happy with the recruitment process. Any further questions in relation to the other role need to be directed that way. Uh, we've had a number of questions come through uh, and Ian is asking, uh, was her appointment made as part of the negotiation for your appointment as chief executive or was it a separate process? So I went through, as an individual, a very, very extensive process. Um, it started in roundabout about uh, this time last year 
and went on for many months. So I was appointed through a very open, transparent process and my process was my process for the appointment into the role of Director General. It was in its own right. And and so then, I suppose what you're saying by implication is that the, the other one is a separate process. It's a separate process. All right. Um, Bev asks the Director General if he can explain uh, how it's safe for patients and good value for money for the health authority to have hospital wards operating with more than half of the staff coming from agencies, according to Bev. I think it's a really good question. It's a really important question, if I can say so, because I would like, if we could, to have um, all permanent employees um, in, in, in all of our wards and all of our departments. Unfortunately, the nature of healthcare the world over at the moment is there are a large number of vacancies. You know, that, 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 that the World Health Organization has forecast that over the next 10 years, there's going to be 10 million worldwide vacancies in healthcare. And that affects us within Gibraltar. So we do have to, in order to staff the ward safely, have agency staff that we bring in. But if I could permanently recruit and appoint to those posts, I would. Because if you like, the supposition or the presupposition of the question is right. It's better to have permanent staff in place if we can get them. So so it's uh, the requirement for more skills. The, the, how satisfied are you with Gibraltar's skill base uh, as, a, as a place, as an economy, as a, a place that educates people, that trains people? Are, are we uh, developing enough health care professionals? So I think Gibraltar is, has done and is doing a tremendous job in terms of trying to develop and grow the health and care workforce of the future. But if I can put it this way, and, and you know, I don't want to, be, to sound too grand about it, but there's an existential crisis, I think, in healthcare the world over. If you look at what's happening, we've got ageing populations in most developed countries, but we've got populations that are not particularly ageing well, so we're getting a lot of comorbidities in our elderly population. So that means the demand for healthcare is increasing exponentially, and therefore the requirements for staff are increasing because of that, we need to think about the future and future-proof ourselves for the future. And the more that we can develop the, our own local staff within Gibraltar, the better. I suspect there will always be some very specialist services and staff that we will need to try and get from the UK or for elsewhere. But what we have to recognise in those instances, we're in a worldwide market. You know, if you're a healthcare professional trained, say, in the UK... It could be a doctor, a nurse, it could be a paramedic. You could go anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world, those services are required. So we have to make sure that the offering that we've got in Gibraltar is really attractive to get those people to work in Gibraltar and then supplement that by growing our own um, workforce. So we're doing some really innovative stuff for the future with Gibraltar University, thinking about the courses and the development of our own, our own staff. And I think the more that we can do that, the better. There's a question coming in from Kate. What's happening with the COVID fund? So uh, this is something I, I genuinely don't know a great deal about. It was before my time in terms of the COVID fund. What I can say is that, you know, we, we look at all of, the, all of the equipment that we purchased through COVID and during COVID, and we're trying to use that equipment to the best of our abilities so that it doesn't become obsolete. Now, I'm told there was a COVID fund, but I really can't answer that because it, it, it really was before my time.
Okay, uh, a follow-up from Bev on, on the back of her question about agency staff, and, and, and I think she's, uh, in, in simple terms, asking um, why is it not possible for the GHA to employ some of those people who are currently working in the GHA as agency staff? What's stopping you making them GHA employees? Well, many of those staff prefer to, to be on agency contracts. A lot of people like the flexibility of an agency contract. They can pick the shifts that they want. They can they, they, they can also take leave when, when they want. It fits in with their lifestyle. So we are doing an exercise to try and make as many staff as we can permanent where we can employ them. But I suspect there will always be an element of agency staff that we will have to employ in a healthcare market because that's how people want to work these days. Mel has asked uh, about um, the MRI scanner, which uh, is currently, I think, in the process of being fixed. Uh, I, you, you will know better than I, but it, it was out of service for, for a, a number of weeks at Gibraltar's uh, private medical, uh, the, the private hospital at, uh, at the ICC, Jibmed. And, um, and, and uh, Mel's question is simply, when will GHA patients be able to use it? So... Uh, Again, it's it's not my remit. I can't really speak for another organisation. What I can say is that you know we're always looking to upgrade our clinical equipment, our medical equipment. We're looking at our position with our CT scanner as we speak, and we've just entered a really um, important managed service equipment agreement with an external firm who, over the next ten years, are coming in and going to upgrade all of our medical equipment. So it's really exciting what we're going to do. I can't really argue or answer for another organisation. That would be wrong. Okay, and um, in in respect of uh, those plans, are you suggesting that potentially the hospital could have its own MRI scanner? Well, we clearly we don't have one at present, and we you know we do use um, external organisations to support us. But I am really open to looking at all options in terms of medical equipment in the future and medical services for the future. And I think what's really important for an organisation such as the GHA, I think I said in, in an answer previously, healthcare is changing, it's evolving, it's going through the most radical and rapid transformation of any sectors, I think, anywhere in the world. And it's important that we keep up to date with that. So I think we always have to look about whether we can get the most important technology in. I mean, one of the things, you know, and I don't want to set any, any expectations, but, you know, there's a lot of work now going on in the likes of robotic surgery, for instance. You know, and I think we need to look at that for Gibraltar. Is it right that we could have our own surgical robot and invest in that? So there's always advancements and developments in, in healthcare that we need to be on top of and we need to look at for the future. We've had a, a number of callers um, express surprise that um, you're not aware of what's happening with the COVID-19 fund, uh, which uh, I think uh, was, uh, I think, to the tune of about three and a half million pounds and raised via um, donations from members of the community. And I think some of those people are asking, um, he's the director general, um, he should know. Uh, what's going to happen with that money. And, and, and if you don't, Mr McGee, can you make a commitment to find out and, and come back to us on that? Of course I can. 
let's move on to a question that comes in from Max, who's asking about autoimmune conditions. Uh, he mentions rheumatoid arthritis, uh, multiple cirrhosis, among others. He says uh, such conditions are on the rise worldwide, and he thinks also in Gibraltar. And he's asking how well positioned is the GHA to, to cope with that rise in demand. He thinks that currently there are fairly limited services available for those autoimmune conditions. And, and I, I wouldn't disagree. I think that, that there are relatively limited local services, although we do use um, you know, services elsewhere, say in the UK, for, for, for example. But that's exactly the, what I've been trying to say in terms of how we need to look and position ourselves for healthcare services in the future. You know, disease patterns change, the requirements of our communities change, and I think we always have to be fleet of foot looking at the services that we want to implement for the future. So these are areas that we are currently actively reviewing, and when it is right for Gibraltar, when we think we can implement these services safely and when we have the funding for these services, it's right that we should implement them. I am very, very committed to always trying to develop our portfolio of services and always trying to improve our portfolio of services. I think our communities deserve that and the more that we can deliver these services locally, the better. Another question uh, coming in from a Radio Gibraltar listener um, who suggests there's a very long waiting list for the orthopaedics department. When might this be improved? So th- th- there, are w- there are waiting lists for, for orthopaedic care. I have to say, um, looking at the, the waiting list that we have in Gibraltar compared to the waiting list, say, that I've come through in the UK, the waiting lists in Gibraltar are very short in comparison to those waiting lists in, in, um, in the UK. Over the last 18 months, the GHA has done some tremendous work reducing those waiting lists and bringing them down in many, many of the specialties. We are aware that the waiting lists in orthopaedics are still longer than we would like them, and we are looking at all options in terms of trying to put additional sessions on, trying to bring in visiting consultants and the like to try and reduce those waiting lists. So it is something that I do accept, and it is something that's very much on our radar to improve. Okay, um, we're speaking to the Director General of the Health Authority, Kevin McGee. Thank you if you've sent in a question. Uh, We've had a a lot of them. Uh, One of them here is asking uh, about um, uh, the... I've asked you about the orthopaedics department. Let me move on to the children's dental care, uh, which is uh, another significant talking point. Um, The Health Authority, whenever the Health Authority is discussed, um, we always get a lot of callers asking about the waiting lists how well have you done so far in in bringing that waiting list down for children's dental care so over the last sort of few months we've done a great deal of work in terms of trying to work in terms of looking at innovative solutions to bring down that 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 waiting list it's still longer than i would hope it would be but we are putting on additional sessions we're we're, we're trying to uh, look at additional staff to improve those waiting lists so Yes, there's more to do, but I think we should be proud of the work that we've done in Gibraltar in terms of focusing on children's waiting lists, particularly dental waiting lists, and we will continue to focus our energy and effort in bringing those waiting times down. I would not want anybody waiting longer than necessary, and so any waiting list in any speciality for any age group I think is something that has to be reviewed, and if we can practically and sensibly and safely bring those waiting lists down. That's my commitment to do so. Um, We've 
uh, we've talked a little bit about um, about the importance of uh, of care and and improving the the quality of care, which was one of the points in the uh, seven point uh, plan that we discussed earlier. Uh, you in, in in confirming your uh, in, in, when the government confirmed that they uh, had a, reached a contractual agreement with you uh, to become the new director general, uh, they quoted you as saying that you wanted uh, to uh, put in place an integrated care model. What does that mean? So if you think about health and care, um, it, it's it's a very wide platform. So a lot of people just think about healthcare as being St. Bernard's Hospital in our, in our instance, but it, it's, it's much more than that. So it's primary care, it's community care, it's social care, it's the work that we do at the care agency, it's mental health in particular. And what you tend to find in most health systems the world over is there's too many barriers, there's too many different organisations, there's too many interfaces, and that breeds and makes sure that we have um, breakdowns in communication. So what I'm trying to do and what I think is absolutely right, and I think we've got the chance to do it in Gibraltar, is actually look at all of those services and have pathways where patients can come on the pathways from, from self-care right the way through to tertiary care, the most specialist care, and they should see those services as completely and utterly seamless. So they shouldn't get passed on from primary care to secondary care. They shouldn't get passed on from the health authority to the care agency. It should be seamless. And if you look at the best and best performing health systems in the world, that's both in terms of health outcomes, but also in terms of the most efficient use of resources, they are integrated healthcare systems. And I was asked the question, what would be success for, for me? You know, I'm, 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 we're on a three, I'm on a three-year contract. And what would be success? Well, what would be success at the end of those three years is that people from across the world came to look at Gibraltar and said they have got a really special integrated healthcare system that delivers first-class outcomes and does it within you know, available resources. I think we've got a real opportunity of delivering that within Gibraltar. And I think that's what's so exciting about working and living in Gibraltar. And if I may, just one final question, but I'll ask you to be brief because we're almost out of time. Uh, Daniel is asking if you were involved in the presentation of plans for the new oncology unit at St. Bernard's. And were you aware that those plans were uh, the exact same plans as used for a hospital in Milton Keynes? So we always said that those plans were indicative plans of what the unit would or could look like. So we were very, very clear. We This is a, a really good news story. We're developing a new oncology unit. We want it to be state-of-the-art, such as the units in the UK, and we used indicative drawings and documents to show what it could look like. All right. Uh, thank you for your time, Kevin McGee, uh, and I'm sure as Director General of the Health Authority, I hope that we'll have an opportunity to speak to you again soon, and best of luck in your role. Thank you. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. A, a significant story yesterday. It felt uh, like it was uh, something that we needed to handle carefully. The government refers or, or is says it's going to refer a, a disruption to its IT systems, a total outage, uh, that they're going to refer that to the police because they think that it potentially could be sabotage. Uh, and then, on the other hand, we heard the GGCA union 
talking about its um, its members in the IT and logistics department, uh, staff who are currently taking industrial action, feeling horrified, afraid and intimidated by the position taken by the government in response to their industrial action. Uh, and um, Shalina Asimal has been following the story. You had to prepare for that interview with Wendy Cumming last night, and, and I think that there has been a development today, but over to you, Shalina. Absolutely, Jonathan. So as you said, yes, it was a busy evening last night as we received the government statement. Uh, um, as the as you said, the union is uh, horrified to hear um, that this could be reported to the police, but let's just rewind for a moment, because this has moved pretty quickly. We already had mm. Wendy on to talk about just the industrial action in itself, and then we received this statement, which to, escalated things very to, quickly. To understand why they are taking industrial action. Absolutely. So the information technology and logistics department staff, as well as the IT staff at Treasury, are taking this action because they say that they earn a lot less than their equivalents in the GHA's in the GHA's IT department, uh, though they are apparently more in line with the UK pay scales. Um, the GGCA says this remuneration is unfair and it creates a retention issue as well. So uh, Wendy Cumming, uh, speaking on GBC News last night, explained how this has happened. Just before Christmas, GHA vacancies came out as a result of which it became obvious that the pay scales were markedly different. Mm-hmm. What happened? We went to, the, uh, we went to industrial relations, we, we had meetings, we explained that this was um, you know, wrong because of, you know, there was, should be some parity between the same grades, but also wrong because it means that retention of staff in these departments gets much harder. What happened? It went through anyway, and now two ITLD officers will be moving to the GHA, and they will be earning £11,000 more a year just for that move, when their job roles will be equivalent. Okay. So what happens there? I'm sorry, just to say, obviously, that lack of parity has ramifications because people are doing work remunerated at very different rates within the same sectors of the public service. And also it means that from ITLD and Treasury perspective, they will find it very, very difficult to retain staff when there are vacancies at the GHA. Wendy coming there. So she also told us uh, that the pay gap between the IT roles at ITLD and the GHA IT roles range from about 5000 to £11,000. And she said that's at every sort of role that there is that difference three or four yes and uh, all of them she says are getting paid more at the gha um so the government rejects the ggca's pay claim and it says that the roles and responsibilities and the titles are actually different and they're not comparable at all Uh, they actually told us that when we asked for the gha pay scale because they'd provided the itld ones last night with their statement but not the gha ones Uh, miss cumming says that she's comparing them based on job descriptions and on the actual work involved which she knows more about since those two roles were taken up by those officers. So the industrial action is um, them basically refusing discretionary overtime. Um, IT workers are on a go slow and they're not going to be doing any remote access after hours. On the back of this, on Monday, there was a disruption to the government's IT infrastructure and that caused a total internet outage. Um, This was at about 10 past five in the afternoon. And then the government, as you mentioned, issues 
the statement last night and they say that this affected emails, internet access from government desktops and other services such as Parliament. And the, the big line from this statement mm. was, of course, um, that they also described it as a potential act of sabotage. Um, it's, uh, the government said that this posed a serious risk to the security of Gibraltar's national infrastructure and put lives at risk. So some very big statements and that there. one in particular sort of um, caught our attention. We thought, wow, so, so how have people's lives been put at risk by this? Absolutely. And we did put that to the government. You know, how has this disruption put lives at risk? And I have their statement here. Um, and they actually told us that the outage caused significant disruption and impeded both the communication of citizens with the government and the ability of public servants to do their jobs safely and securely, including but not limited to the provision of essential services to vulnerable individuals, as well as in departments with responsibilities relating to public safety and security, such as the RGP and the Gibraltar International Airport. The full extent of the risk caused and the interference with systems of communication, facilities for transport and services related to health are currently being assessed by the Office of the Chief Secretary. So it's an ongoing process then to understand what risk this may have caused. Absolutely. And as, as you mentioned at, uh, at the start of our discussion, um, the headline in, in their statement was that this would be passed on to the police. Um, so we reached out to the RGP uh, this morning and as at about 8.30, uh, they had not received a report as of yet of anything to do with this um, issue. Yeah, was, what's curious about the statement is that it doesn't mention the police, it's only in the headline. Absolutely, mm. it says to be reported to police, so uh, that's why we wanted to find out if in fact it had been. All right, and um, and I suppose this is a story that could develop, uh, we'll be following it, and if there are any movements then we'll make sure to tell people about it as soon as we can and as soon as we've checked the facts. Absolutely. Uh, Wendy Cumming is keen for workers to continue taking industrial action, as she used the word uh, with resolve uh, last night. Uh, so I imagine we will be hearing more of this. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar Today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.